I hope you noticed we got blue and green microphone cords today. <laughs> Thought about wearing a Seahawks jersey, but I don't have one. Um. I have a t-shirt that's one size too small, so you wouldn't want to see that. <laughs> uh, have mercy. Uh, did you open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1? Well, there you go. We're going to... Let's all, let's, all, let's all stop for a moment of silent prayer. <laughs> Boy, it's... it's uh, you know, uh, the Northwest is kind of the Rodney Dangerfield of uh, the U.S., and so we, we have this collective need for self-esteem that uh, the Seahawks will bring to us, but... I'm sure if they win, it will be a fluke. <laughs> it will be undeserved. The other team will have actually played better, even though we won. You know how that goes. Uh, I can't imagine the pressure that's on the people involved in today's game, on either side of the ball. Uh, my goodness. Uh, any mistake by uh, a member of the Broncos, I mean the losing team, uh, I mean whoever it might be, uh, will be rehearsed and remembered every time the game is discussed. Ultimately, a lot of the responsibility rests with the coach. You know, when the, uh, when the regular season ended, other teams who hadn't been winning so many games just immediately started firing coaches. You know, you, I, I think those guys have to keep their resume up to date all the time. If a coach leads a team to do something out of the ordinary and they win, he's a genius. And if they lose, <laughs> well, he's an idiot. God has a plan for reaching people with his message and in the day of Corinth, as in today, a lot of people second-guess that method. And as we come to 1 Corinthians, starting in chapter, or chapter 1, verse 17, we're going to understand how God wants to share his message with people. And I hope it will be instructive to you and encouraging to you as we consider the simplicity of preaching. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, the Apostle Paul saying, Christ did not send me to baptize, nor to preach, but to preach the gospel, not with words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
One of the things that doesn't make sense to a lot of people is the simplicity of God's plan for sharing Christ. Look at verse 17. The Apostle Paul said, I did not use the wisdom of words, I just preached the gospel. The word preach here, and it's going to be used uh, several times in our passage as well as another word, the word preach is used over 200 times in the New Testament, and it's a compound of the Greek word for messenger or, and the word for good, the idea of good news. It's not the word that actually talks about preaching, like saying words or standing up or that sort of thing. It talks more about the message, the good news. When it's in a noun form, it means good news, when it's in a verb form, it means the guy who's preaching the good news. The word preach means good news. Do you know what the word gospel means? Good news. <laughs> the word in Greek looks like our word evangel or evangelism or evangelistic. In Greek, it would be pronounced ou but eu, and then the word for an angel, if you will, or a messenger. And so in Old English, the, the two words, gos, uh, gosp and el, the two together meant good news. And so we have this term, the good news or the gospel or the evangel, evangelism. It's all about sharing God's message. Now in verse, verses 21 and 23, it's a different word for preach. Since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached. The message preached, and the word pre for preaching here and in verse 23 just means to declare. It emphasizes the act of speaking, whereas the word gospel puts more emphasis on the content. Now here comes the rocket science. I want you to get your pencil ready, because I'm going to say something really profound right now. And to you it might seem simple, but you need to think a little more broadly in the world. Um, God's method for sharing the gospel is simple speaking. There's my rocket science for today. Okay, You say, well, Dave, that ain't much. Did you spend all week on that, Dave? I don't think we got our money's worth this week. You actually got more than your money's worth because you know there's a lot of folks today, as there was in the day of Corinth, who say that's not enough. It's not good enough, it won't do the job, it's not powerful enough, we gotta find some fancy way to say things, we gotta figure out some human way to be powerful. The Apostle Paul in verse 17 says, I didn't use the wisdom of words, I just stood up and said, here's the message of Christ. And there's a, a tendency on some folks' part to say, that, that won't work. William Barclay said this about the, day, the people in the day of Paul. The Greeks were intoxicated with fine words, and to them the Christian preacher with his blunt message seemed crude and uncultured, someone to be laughed at and ridiculed rather than listened to and respected. A lot of people today want to ridicule the message of Christ. And one of the pushbacks that comes to Christianity from that ridicule is this. We, we need to find a different way to say it. We've got to find a better way to say it. We've got to be more sophisticated in the way that we say it. A proper sharing of the gospel requires biblical simplicity. 
not intellectual complexity. Because the impact of the truth depends on God's power, not human manipulation. And we've got to believe the gospel so much that we say, you know, it's my job to declare it, to just say that good news. When we lived in Tukwila, I was called by the police one time to go to a home where an infant had died. Child's mother and father were there, and in time, a pair of grandparents came in, a set of grandparents, grandma and grandpa, and they were the grandparents of the mother of this child. And uh, sometime after I left, I was not there to witness this, but I heard about it, they went to the father of the child. The, the, the grandfather of the child had been a longshoreman, okay, so you know that he's not going to be too fancy in the way that he talks. And he went to the father of the child who had died, and the child's name was Aaron. And he says to the father, he says, Carl, Aaron is dead, he's with the Lord, and if you ever want to see him again, you've got to believe on Jesus Christ as your Savior. So he did. And he came to our church, and we baptized him, and we discipled him, and we trained him, and he became a Sunday school teacher. You can't get saved that way, don't you know? You can't just say the truth to somebody like that and then come to Christ. That doesn't work. Tell it to Carl. Now, I understand there's more to the message than just one sentence. I get that. There's a lot of truth to be shared. But it doesn't take sophistication, it takes communication. It takes communication. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him on whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? The title of my message today is, When I Grow Up, I Want to Be a Preacher. Not the kind that gets paid for it. We got plenty of those. Don't, don't be looking after my job or anything. No, a preacher is simply somebody who declares the message. You might, you might do it with a person working next to you. You might do it with, with your neighbor, with your loved one. It's just declaring the message. How will they hear without a preacher? We need to preach, that is to declare the truth and let God do the heavy lifting from there. We can't save people. We can't convert people. We can urge them. We can encourage them. But the best we can do is share the message and that is how God wants to share Christ with the world. God's method of reaching people shouldn't work. It shouldn't work. We shouldn't be able to go to people and say, there was a man who was God in the flesh, and he came to this earth, and he lived, and he died, and was buried, and rose again, and God punished him for your sin, and if you believe that, you'll be saved. That shouldn't work, but it does. It does. It shouldn't work, but it does. And that makes it a humble message. It's humble in the world's eyes. The whole tone of this passage is, is a little bit uh, tongue-in-cheek, a little bit sarcastic, um, and in the sense of saying the world calls this foolishness, but God calls it wisdom. Verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
the, the, the message of the cross, the word of the cross, the preaching of the cross, the truth, the word here for message is logos, and it means uh, something that's well thought out. It's not just words coming out of somebody's mouth, but a well thought out and intentional kind of communication. The message of the cross is the doctrine of salvation through the crucifixion of the Son of God as a sacrifice for human sins. Charles Hodge said in his commentary, Paul summarized this message that we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. I declare to you, I preach to you the good news which I preach to you, which, I, which also you received, and in which you stand, that's another way to say you're a believer standing in Christ, by which you are saved, if you hold fast that word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you first of all, the most important thing, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, or Peter, and then by the twelve. These these are the, 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 the gospel in a nutshell, if you will. Now what Paul says here is this message is seen by those who are perishing as foolishness. The word foolishness is where we get our word moron. They look at that message and say it is moronic. The word moron is actually an old technical term for somebody who is mentally deficient. In the dictionary, it goes like this, a moron is a mentally deficient person, but less so than an idiot or an imbecile. Those were actually classifications of what came to be called retardation. And so the world looks at this message and says, you are mentally deficient. It's foolish, it's moronic. You believe that the Son of God took on human flesh, lived a perfect life, and died to pay the sin debt you had with God? That, doesn't mount, that does not make sense. Now, if you want to talk about Jesus as a good man, a teacher of the highest human moral ethics, and a great example, now that makes sense. But Jesus was buried and rose again on the third day? That's idiotic. The message of Christ doesn't make sense to unbelievers, so they attack it as being foolish. But what Paul says going on is they cannot attack the impact of it. They can't argue with the validity of the message. Verse 18 again, the, it is foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who do not believe, but to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. There, there are essentially two receptions of the gospel. Here he divides everybody into two categories. You're either perishing or you're being saved. Now these are both written in the present tense, and so sometimes we might be confused and think that salvation is a step-by-step -step process, and that's not the way God intends for us to, to grasp it. Um, this message, uh, this verse kind of uh, summarizes it up. He who believes in Christ is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Now that doesn't mean if you reject the gospel message or you fail to believe. If you're here today and you're not a believer and you're saying, well, I'm not ready to believe that, that doesn't mean you're on your way to hell with no possibility of turning back. But it does mean you're living in a state of condemnation 
that will result someday in you going to hell for what we could call the final condemnation. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Those who are perishing are those who have yet to believe in Christ and are living under the condemnation of God on their way to hell. The phrase, are being saved, does not imply a process like I'm going to earn my salvation one step at a time, but there is a process to what God does in our lives. The first thing that God removes when we believe in Christ is the penalty of sin. When you come to Christ that first time and say, I am a sinner, Christ is the Savior, I am believing in what he did on the cross. When you do that, God takes the penalty off of your life. There is no more death penalty. There is no more punishment for sin. God takes the punishment you deserved and puts it onto Christ. He already put it onto Christ at the cross. And the result of having the penalty of sin removed is at any moment in time, you're ready to go to heaven. See, in in the doctrine of a very large church in the world, a very, very, one of the major churches, you have to keep doing things, and depending on how much you have done and how good you are at the moment of your death, then that determines how long you're going to spend in an intermediate state getting all the rest of your sin taken care of before you're finally ready to go to heaven. The problem with that doctrine or anything like it is this. You cannot save yourself. You can't bear one ounce of God's punishment on sin. That's why Christ suffered for us. And so once we put our faith in Christ, God takes the penalty off the table, and what he sees is the righteousness of Christ in your life. Now, if you're real smart, you know that you aren't perfectly righteous right this minute. Okay, And so you say, well, if God has taken, he's taken that penalty off, what did he not take off? He did not take off our ability to choose sin. He, he, he killed our sin nature in the sense that we're not controlled by it, but as we walk in our human flesh, temptations present themselves and we have the opportunity to choose righteousness or sinfulness. He has allowed us that struggle and the Holy Spirit empowers us and day by day that is being worked out in our life. But that will end when we see Christ face to face, whether it be at our death or at the rapture, when he comes for all the believers at that point in time, at that day, God is going to say, you've struggled enough. I'm going to wipe out all the rest of anything that's going on in your life. Come on up. Between the day of our salvation and the day of our redemption to see Christ, we are working to say no to sin and yes to righteousness and to becoming more like Christ day by day. And so it's right to say that those who are being saved, there is this threefold process going on that is a way to refer to those of us who have believed in Christ. And he says, for those of us who have believed in Christ, who are in the process of being saved, this message of the cross, look at verse 18, it is the power of God. It is the power of God. 
You can call it moronic you want, if you want, but it doesn't change the fact that when you believe in Christ, God changes your life. God gives you a hope for heaven. God gives you an assurance of heaven. Chad announced today that, that Joy Palco went to be with the Lord. It was on Thursday, I believe. And uh, earlier in the week, her daughter called me and said, we're putting her in the hospice house because he... Uh, you know, Joy had had problems, many problems and many surgeries for many years. And, uh, and I went to see her in the hospice house on Wednesday. And uh, she was alone and she was sleeping. And, you know, just so you know, if you're sleeping in the hospital, I'm probably not going to wake you up. If, if you'd like to have an advanced directive that says, always wake me up when you come, Pastor Dave, send me an email, because otherwise I'm not going to wake you up. I just... I'm just not that important, you know. I, just, I would feel bad if I woke you up when you finally got to sleep. But Joy's getting ready to see the Lord. So I didn't wake her up, but I did sit down and start reading the Scripture. I thought, you know, maybe she's in a coma, and um, I've known people in comas who can still remember things. I don't know what's going on. So I just sat down and started reading the Scripture. And I thought, I'm going to read the 23rd Psalm, because if she's at all aware, she'll resonate with that and... and uh, so I started reading the 23rd Psalm, and uh, she woke up about halfway through. Or, uh, I read a couple of passages, and then she kind of woke up, and I went back and read the 23rd Psalm again. And, and then I prayed for her, and I got ready to go, and uh, kind of stood up, and I didn't know, you know, you don't know what's going on exactly. And she kind of was reaching with her hand, so I reached over and took her hand, and, and she smiled. If you know Joy Palco, there's been times in her life when she hasn't been real happy. And she smiled, the sweetest smile I've ever seen her smile. She said, I love you. I said, I love you too. You're going to be with Jesus soon. She closed her eyes. That's the power of God. That's the power of God. She's not fighting this. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, she said, hey, I'm done with any treatment. I'm ready to go. That's the power of God. You can call it foolishness, but you can't deny its reality. We need to understand as believers that there are going to be people in the world who are going to say, you're a moron for believing that message. That's a stupid message. But it's not because it changes our lives. Paul says, you can't argue with the validity of the message and you can't argue with the inferiority of human wisdom. Look at verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise person? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer or the, the uh, debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? The quote in verse 9 is taken from an episode in, in, uh, in Israel's past in which the Assyrian army was coming against uh, uh, Lachish, I believe it was, and God said, don't worry about it, Hezekiah. And and one of the commentators wrote it this way, and I thought it was so poignant. The commentator said, God sent one angel 
And he killed 185,000 people to protect God's people. One angel, just one angel. I could kill you with my little finger, you know, that kind of thing. And, 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 and the Assyrians had been saying, we are going to wipe you off the map. And this is a quote from the book of Isaiah. Uh, God says, you think so, but it isn't so. Human wisdom, Greek culture was unsurpassed in the ancient world. The people of Corinth were, were all around these, these uh, people who have come down through history now. Poetry and oratory, uh, art and science, philosophy. Uh, we think of men like Homer, Herodotus, Sophocles, Socrates, Plato, Plutarch, Pericles, Aristotle, Archimedes, Alexander, Euclid, and Euripides. You may not be familiar with all of these names, but would you think about something with me for a minute? Um, what's, what's the most famous thing that Euclid did that has, that has persisted into our lifetime? This is a, a test for you high school students. Plain geometry, that's right, Euclidean geometry. This guy invented geometry. Well, God invented it, actually, but he's the guy who put down all this stuff. And, and when you're in high school and, you know, you're, you're studying the isosceles triangle and all that stuff, this is the guy. That's a smart guy. I'm not that smart. I think I got about an A- minus or a B in geometry. I don't know, but he figured it out guy named Plato, now we refer to the Platonic method of teaching, which is using questions to guide students toward the right answer. Homer uh, created methods of persuasive speech that are still taught and used. Aristotle thought and taught on a wide subjects. His most famous accomplishment is this. He was the tutor of Alexander the Great, the guy who conquered the world in his day. So when Paul talked about worldly wisdom, he's talking about all these guys. There was a lot of wisdom out there. A huge body of knowledge. But none of these schools of philosophy quenched mankind's desire for the power to live a good life and to have peace about life after death. And the same thing is true today. Modern man looks to science, technology, sociology, psychology, philosophy, education, business, and politics to solve mankind's problems. But life's biggest questions still have no answers. One of the greatest minds of our day, uh, forgotten his name, the, 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 Hawking, Stephen Hawking, you know, a theoretical physicist, in his most recent book, he said there's, there's solar systems after solar systems after all this stuff going on out there. And you know what his reasoning is? Because. Because he thought it up. He's got nothing. Nobody has anything. There is nothing besides God's word that is real and unchanging and changes people's lives. The biggest... Questions of life still have no answers in the world. I love this quote. It's from J. Vernon McGee. Philosophy is a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that isn't there. <laughs> and people are excited about the pursuit of knowledge. 
And so they keep going and going and trying and trying. And, and every time some guy like Stephen Hawking or whoever you want to cite comes up with a new philosophy, ah, everybody's all gaga about it until the next guy comes along. What is the, what's the summary of our current American philosophy of life? Okay. What is the wisdom or knowledge base of our current way of American life? Well, it's whatever I can see and touch and feel. It's, it's whatever I can think up. It's whatever's there. What is our concept of origin? Evolution of some kind. What is our ethic or our way of living based on our origin and our, and our wisdom source? Since we arrived by chance, life doesn't matter. Do what makes you happy. And there are two things that supposedly enable this happiness. Education and absolute moral freedom. What's our destiny? Annihilation or zip and you're gone. Now there's one problem with this theory to the secular folks. You're supposed to be able to enjoy life and do whatever makes you happy, but... You have to curb that enough because you've got to be nice to everybody else. Political correctness. Political correctness does not fit with do whatever makes you happy. Political correctness does not fit with the, uh, the survival of the fittest. We're supposed to give certain rights to other people whether we like it or not. Why? Why? In that philosophical system, there is no answer. It is a barren system. You want to know what the reality of human wisdom is? What has human wisdom actually created? Evolution gave us Stalin, Hitler, Mao. All of these people rejected Christianity. And what were the results? I just heard this week, or in the last couple of weeks, I was hearing that, that uh, Hitler actually had some exposure to Christianity earlier in his life, and somehow, uh, either he just plain didn't like it, or, or people weren't really living out their Christian faith. So what did an embracing of evolution give us with Stalin, the pogroms where he oppressed the Jewish people and many of the, the uh, as we would call them, Soviet people um, years ago? Hitler, we know what he did, Mao and the the cleansing of China years ago, they all rejected Christianity. And what good was that? How about greed? Get what you want, do what you want. Greed gives us the South American drug cartels and the Wall Street bankers and a huge recession. What about sexual freedom? Back in the 60s, everybody thought, boy, if we can just have sexual freedom, absolute Freedom to do whatever we want and liberation. What has it given us? Single moms, broken families, prostitution, human trafficking, and sexually transmitted disease. What about the pursuit of pleasure? Now it's going to be legal to smoke marijuana in our state. That's going to really set us apart. We won the Super Bowl, and you can smoke dope. Do we really think that's going to improve the quality of society? Let's see, what has legal alcohol done? 
the pursuit of pleasure gives us drug addiction, crime, bankruptcy. Humanly created religions give us crusades, jihad, war, starvation. You know, there are lands where people are starving to death while the cows walk around being worshipped. Murder of other religious groups. Have our philosophical, technological, and religious advances made us a better people, more peaceful, more joyful? John MacArthur puts his finger right on the problem in his commentary when he says, human wisdom sometimes sees the immediate cause of a problem, but it does not see the root, which is always sin. It may see that selfishness is a cause of injustice, but it has no way to remove selfishness. It may see that hatred causes misery and pain and destruction, but it has no cure for hatred. Human wisdom is inferior. Is in inferior. God's wisdom is superior. God's salvation is superior. Look at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know him, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now, God is not calling the message of salvation foolish. He is saying it's foolishness to those who are outside who don't believe. They look at the message of Christ and say, it's foolish. And he says, God has chosen to save people through something that the world considers to be foolish. Verse 22, for the Jews request a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness. God's salvation is so powerful it cannot be stopped by, the two, by two of the most powerful forces of opposition. Look at verse 22. The two forces of opposition are this. The Jews request a sign and the Greeks request, request wisdom. And so those forces of opposition come like this. Some people demand tangible, visible, physical evidence. The Jews did this. People today do this. Do you remember this story of Jesus healing a blind man? I've, I've excerpted it a little bit to, so we don't have to take too much time on it. But when he had said these things, he spat on the ground, that's Jesus, made clay with the saliva. He anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing then they said to him, they, people who were asking the blind man, where is this guy that healed you? Where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought him who was formerly blind to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. Now it was a Sabbath, the day of worship, when, or the day of uh, rest, when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And then the Pharisees also asked him, saying how he had received his sight. He said, he put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees say, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. They thought it was working to do this miracle on the Sabbath because he made clay, and so making clay is working, and so he couldn't be from God. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs, such miracles? And there was a division among them. They had a debate. 
Then they said to him again, to the blind man again, they're questioning him further. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. For the man answered and said to them, why, this is a marvelous and incredible thing. You do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes? You know, you're the religious leaders of Israel. This guy just did a miracle, and you have no idea what's going on? Now we know that God does not hear sinners. You told us that. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, then he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. Now if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were completely born in sins and you are teaching us. And they cast him out. Now here's the point. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, the Jewish people reject Christ because they want a miraculous proof. They want you to walk up and and hand them a tangible proof, a little piece of heaven that fell out of the sky. This proves that Jesus is the Messiah. When Jesus was here on earth, they went to him and said, show us a sign that proves who you are. And when they said that, he said, I'm not going to give you any sign except the sign of Jonah, three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. I'll be three nights and three days in in the heart of the earth. But this miracle had already taken place. And here's a blind guy who's no religious expert looking the, the religious people in the eye saying, I don't know what's wrong with you guys. I mean, how could this guy not be from God? And this notable miracle was done and what did they do? La, 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 I can't see anything, I can't hear anything, ah, it didn't happen, no, 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 it's not true, not true, not true, not true. Because it did not fit with their belief system. You want a miracle? Jesus gave them miracle after miracle after miracle. And yet they still refused to believe. People today will talk about angels and aliens and near-death experience and even their game day superstitions and believe in them, but Jesus, you're crazy. Show me some proof. And so you stand up and go, well, how about me? This is what I used to be. This is what I am now. This is where I'm going. God did that in me. No, 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 no. Don't tell me about that. How about if I tell you about this guy? This guy, he was really messed up. I was just kind of average. But he was really messed up. And look at him now. No, 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 no. There are people in the world who want physical, tangible proof. When you give them proof, they say, I don't care. I don't like it. And then there are people who want rational evidence. That is, they want to be able to figure things out. This person says, if I can think about something and understand it to make sense, then I will believe. So they study the gospel from a humanistic or a human-limited perspective, and the result is, there's no God needed. 
they look and say, well, we, we got here by evolution. We're here by chance. We're going nowhere. I don't need a God. But what if their premise is wrong? Then all of their understanding is foolish and it's leading them in the wrong direction. Do you know what Paul did in the face of these two arguments? He did a really simple thing. He said, that's what I'm talking about. He said, you, you guys can argue and fuss around all you do. He said, I'm preaching Christ crucified. He put the cross front and center. You think that's foolishness? I'm going to push it right in your face. Why? Because there is no other message. We have no intellectual sophistication. Christ crucified man cannot figure out salvation man can only accept it in faith the vindication of the cross is not wisdom that it makes sense but power that it works the apostle paul preached christ because he had no other message Nothing else that changes people's lives. I have, you know, I, I'm not a huge sports fan. You, you, you probably figured that out, those of you who are. But I, I haven't been as excited about a football game as this one, maybe ever. My son played four years of high school football. We didn't really expect them to win. I was the trainer for the uh, Nooksack football team my last year as a youth pastor. They went 0 and 10. We, I didn't get up in the morning thinking there's going to be a win. I can tell you that right now. Pete Carroll has a plan for the game, which he believes will bring home the trophy. I hope he's right. God has a plan for bringing home the trophy for you, and it's Christ crucified. For indeed the gospel was preached to us, but the word which they heard was, did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. There's only one thing that God wants from us, and it's not our superior intelligence, it's not our strength. He wants us to believe this message. He said, I'm telling you the truth. Here it is. You're a sinner. You're perishing. Christ is the Savior. He has the ability to save you, but you've got to believe it. Let's bow in prayer. Have you believed in Christ as your Savior? Or are you still clinging to some wisdom of the world? You have nothing to lose except pride and everything to gain in Christ. I urge you today, if you've never truly believed in Christ, will you do it?
Will you put your faith in him today? Will you talk to the Father and say, I am a sinner and I need Jesus as my Savior. I receive him to my heart this morning. For those of you that have received Christ, are you just simply speaking this message as God gives you opportunity? Don't ever be afraid to speak the truth because you don't think you're smart enough. You don't think you know enough of the Bible. Just speak the message and let God save some people around you. Heavenly Father, help us. We are all fearful. Our society does not like us anymore, if it ever really did. Help us just to rest in this simple message. We know it saved us. We've experienced that transformation. And so help us just to go out and speak it and, and let you change people as you will. Thank you for a wonderful day of worship. May you be honored as we continue to think about your truth and as we fellowship together. I pray in Christ's name, amen.